Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, it's no secret that Australian newsrooms continue to face a number of challenges from the ongoing transition to digital technologies. And community and regional newsrooms in particular are feeling the pinch as local news services close and budgets are stretched. Community radio stations have continued to keep their audiences informed through fire, flood and even pandemic. But that too has at times been a struggle, though if you ask regional communities what they think of the job community radio does, they'd probably give it the big thumbs up. Amongst all the ups and downs in the last 25 years, community radio stations have turned to national radio news for their daily dose of current affairs. National Radio News broadcasts news bulletins to over 100 radio stations across Australia. The newsroom, based at Bathurst's Charles Sturt University, has been a launching pad for many up-and-coming journalists. This week on Fourth Estate, we look back at NRN's achievements, 25 years after it started. And we're joined by News Director of National Radio News, Frank Bonacorso, Emily Minnie, a senior journalist for NRN, and Emily Francis, a cadet journalist with NRN. Welcome to you all to Fourth Estate. Frank, I'm going to start with you. We know radio is one of the most trusted sources of news. Why do you think that is? And continues to be since its inception, Monica. Look, um, people have often turned to radio for immediacy, for for accuracy guided and um, and benefited by public broadcasting and the thriving public broadcasting um, sector in Australia. And I say thriving in comparison to other countries, developed and Western countries around the world. We have a, uh, a largely free press and um, much of it uh, has its roots in radio. It's now 70, 80 years old and um, finding that um, most Australians in 1974 turned to uh, radio when the details of uh, Gough Whitlam's sacking uh, came through loud and clear, proving the efficacy, the immediacy and the dynamics of the broadcasting sector. Why is radio so trusted? I suppose it's as much to do with convenience you couldn't imagine hurtling down the New England highway at 100 kilometres an hour with a laptop Googling um, uh, uh, on your laptop per se. Radio is that instinctive go-to medium, but radio has um, engendered a, a legend of trust through um, you know, broadcasters of uh, high ilk uh, in the past and continues to do so. And um, without uh, pinpointing any names, yourself included, radio has time and again established itself as the frontier of the fourth estate, which all other mediums follow throughout the course of the day. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Frank? Because there's a lot of commentary about that digital will kill radio off, that it won't be as um, as potent a force because the only time people actually do listen to their radio these days is in the car, as you as you point out, when they're when they're driving around. Do you think there's much um, force in that argument? Oh, look, the same argue, argument's been perpetuated over 20 years, Monica, and I can't see radio dying any quick death uh, anytime soon. Radio has proved itself to be highly adaptive, as we can see through the proliferation of um, the podcast and audio cast sectors over the past decade, and um, continues to be a force in itself where people turn to for both convenience and 
immediate information uh, information of that nature, which they won't find on uh, other mediums. So the pundits have had their day, but I, I, I'm a firm believer that radio will survive technology and flourish into the future. Well, I, I'm with you, brother, on that, but I, and I hope that we're right. Um, mm. So, Emily Francis, you're a cadet. Why were you attracted to radio? Yeah, for sure. As Frank mentioned a lot there, I think that um, radio does outstand the test of time. And as we move into the digital age, I am really passionate. I've always grown up in more regional communities. And I think that for especially an older demographic where I've often surrounded myself with those people that aren't so um, digitally literate or have the capacity to use the internet, um, I think community and national radio like at National Radio News really supports those communities where I've um, immersed myself in and um, strive to continue to do that. So how important was community radio to those regional communities that you grew up in? Oh, so it's so important. I mean, I I grew up in Tasmania where a lot of the um, more community uh, radio broadcasters were starting to be taken over by bigger media conglomerates. And so I think the sustainability of those smaller community stations is so important to feeling connected with those around you. Mm. Um, Emily Minnie, tell us a little bit of your experience with community radio and how it operates and, and, and the importance that, um, that it holds. My experience with community radio really only started when I started my cadetship at National Radio News. Mm -hmm. Growing up, um, all my radio news was really just through um, commercial like talkback stations. So it was a lot of like gossipy entertainment news rather than current affairs and such. Um, and coming to uni and realising that this cadetship was available to me really highlighted the importance of having community media, especially as we embark on the digital age and we just kind of live in an echo chamber of news. So I think that community radio can really diversify that. And even if it is just listening to it in the car, at least it's something different than what's coming up on your Facebook news feeds. Mm. And are you saying there that you don't think that public interest journalism is something that, for example, commercial radio necessarily focuses on? With my experience in consuming, um, I guess, commercial radio is that, and then working in community radio is that the public interest stories that we chase here at National Radio News are different to what public interest is, uh, stories are chased by um, commercial radio. So, yeah, I agree with that. Frank, um, what do you think? Do you think that, um, that the interests of public interest journalism lie predominantly and maybe of necessity with, uh, with community radio and with um, public broadcasting, or do you see that it's um, more diffuse now? Commercial radio, Monica, has a commercial imperative, and that's to make money. And naturally, they're going to ascribe and um, produce programs that appeal to mass audiences, whether that's no, um, uh, that's not a pejorative, a statement in the pejorative or otherwise, it's just a plain matter of fact. That leaves a yawning niche, particularly in regions which are real served by local programming for community radio to step in and fill a void um, tailored to communities and the great multicultural diaspora of um, this country. And where 
commercial broadcasters fear to tread, and and I, I suppose from their perspective, rightfully so, because it's going to cost them um, listeners because that program may or may not appeal to a niche and not the greater uh, the uh, the greater public per se. This is a golden opportunity for public broadcasting and for community radio to step in and fill that breach, which is so desperately needed in a in a vast and growing multicultural society like Australia. And do you see that there's much difference between what you produce at NRN to, for example, what is produced by ABC Regional? Uh, there are there are uh, dynamics there and um, similar dynamics and parallels, but. Um, by and large, we are striving for the same uh, imperative to uh, bring programming to people who would otherwise feel alienated by the great commercial imperative of uh, the commercial broadcasting sector. Yes, there are great parallels between ourselves and the ABC, but I still think there are niches for both broadcast um, the broadcasters to, um, to follow and to fit. And is there room for uh, closer cooperation or uh, allegiances that would benefit both parties? Very much so. I look at the synergies between uh, ABC and uh, regions and community broadcasting and that uh, National Radio News and indeed Charles Sturt University, which also is National Radio News, is often the favoured conduit for uh, uh, regional ABC and for some commercial broadcasters as well, reach out and find precocious talent, uh, preco- uh, c- cadets who have um, served their uh, one to three years at National Radio News. They are in high demand and a number of them uh, populate uh, ABC offices in Ultimo and indeed around the country. So we are serving a great purpose and indeed um, the invidious work, nature of the work uh, in um, uh, national radio news per se, where three people often do the work of one, uh, really stands our cadets and our interns in great stead uh, uh, for their future direction and career path. So tell us a little bit about how it all started. How did national radio news start? Oh, you're going back before my time, but my my instant recollection of it is was a a yawning need within uh, communications faculty at Charles Sturt University, which was uh, and remains to a degree one of the more revered communications degrees in the country. Uh, and so a, a great purpose uh, for a, an, our broadcasting outlet that began as a community radio station to MCA and eventually evolved through the cooperation of a number of uh, faculty directors into a uh, newsroom primarily um, uh, created to serve the interests, the practical uh, emphasis of the communications degree as it was 25 years ago. It has morphed and developed over those 25 years, and we still have a proud record of um, churning out interns and um, prodigious cadets who go on to uh, serve bigger and better things. It was opened by George Negus 25 years ago and um, and still flourishes today with around 100-plus uh, community radio subscribers around the country. So as much for, for, for those of us who, who who might not know, for those listening who might not know, so do those clients pay for the service? They do. They do. They subscribe through the services uh, auspiced by both Charles Sturt University, but uh, is the main news producer for the community uh, broadcast sector and the CBAA um, uh, has a, an arrangement with National Radio News to provide bulletins around the clock, seven days a week. And uh, that's a service which uh, is held out to community radio stations uh, on a subscription basis. And um, 
And indeed, our numbers have uh, always been in three figures and will continue to be so. Emily, Minnie, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, where the news bulletins are broadcast from and where to? Yeah, so our um, newsroom is based in Bathurst, but we broadcast all across the country. So it's a very conscious decision when we find our news stories that if it's something based in Perth, is it something that our Sydney listeners are going to be interested in, vice versa, it's Really, just because we're based in Bathurst doesn't mean we cater just to Bathurst. We cater for the entire nation. Mm. Actually, I was going to talk to you a little bit about that. So talk to, tell us a little bit, if you can, about how you go about being a news service that covers such, you know, a vast area. How, how is there a division of, uh, of stories? Are you looking to stories in particular regions for particular uh, clients? We consider ourselves a, a news relay service. So we blend going out and finding our own stories and um, kind of seeing what's already out there and how we can shape that story for the national interest. Um, we particularly like to produce stories for the Indigenous community and for regional areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the, just to name a few, those are some of the communities that we really need to um, continue to represent and have been representing for 25 years. And just to, just to refine that point, Monica, um, uh, I often tell interns through their internship and the cadetship that instinct can be their best friend. And if uh, they confront a story, a potential story, that they believe will resonate uh, 4,000 kilometres away in Perth as it would in Sydney, then, yes, it's, it's a story that's going to, uh, to favour producers in their lineups. But um, it, the, the barometer is um, it has to pass that instinctive pub test, if you like. That story has to resonate with um, uh, what, you know, people in the West as much as the East. And if it passes that credential, that qualification, then uh, it's a story fit to broadcast on NRN. So is that to say then that you, you aren't focused on hyper-local stories in particular areas or regions of Australia? The beauty of NRN is that we have a, um, a secondary service, a state bulletin, which caters uh, for each of the states and territories. There are five bulletins which are, who, which are prepared by a state producer on a daily basis, Monday to Friday, and those bulletins specifically cater for um, stories that are prominent within each, within each of the states and territories. But national radio news is the harbinger, really, of news that's going to resonate across the country, and our producers are tasked specifically for looking for those stories that will cross the breadth and depth of um, Australia. But, but, but still, I mean, even given that, it does sound to me as though, um, you know, local news considerations might be quite challenging uh, challenging to meet. Is that how you see it? Is that how it, it feels, frankly? No, if there's a local story that we believe will resonate across the country, uh, then then it, it, it's, it's fair game, if you like. We are going to cover it as prodigiously as we would any other story. Um, it, it has to pass that you know, so-called pub test, the, um, uh, the, its ability to travel across state borders and, and, and territory borders that uh, is the key to you know, national radio news has been for its 25-year history and will um, serve beyond.
Okay, Emily Francis, um, you know, during COVID-19, we saw this phenomenon called, you know, news deserts arise. And it's not, it wasn't exactly new, but it certainly accelerated during COVID-19 with the closure um, or contraction of a number of uh, uh, regional news services in particular. So that left huge areas of this country um, with absolutely no access to, to, to news and, and local news in particular. As a young journalist, does that bother you? What what do you see the impact of that as being? Yeah, for sure. As you said, that's not a new thing. It definitely is something that I've been aware of as I've grown up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, as I mentioned before, and as both Frank and Em have both outlined, that's why community radio in particular is so important. I wasn't at NRN in the thick of COVID. I um, have been there right on a year now, but I think COVID and as well the floods have definitely had an impact on that and making um, certain communities such as the regional and Indigenous community, like Em mentioned, feel more isolated. And so I think that um, as a junior journalist, it's our role to um, ensure that 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 we we continue to reach those communities that otherwise wouldn't have their voices heard because I think conversations and changes begin in those communities and so I think it's really important to see um, that that continue to have an impact so yes it is while it is concerning to me that that has definitely been accelerated over the last 18 months I think um, the next generation of journalists like myself are determined especially in the community sector. Mm -hmm. Frank, um, of course, news isn't just local. It's also important for national cohesion to give communities access to all the news, including from Canberra. Now, in 2019, you were joined by a political reporter, I believe, Amanda Kopf, reporting from the Canberra Press Gallery. What impact did that have for the community broadcasting sector to have that kind of representation in the, in the, uh, in the federal press gallery? Monica, it gave National Radio News a breadth that we hadn't um, uh, had before and enabled um, not only um, the political stories of the day to surface on community radio told from first-hand perspective um, direct from Canberra, but allowed us to um, seek and go beyond the main menu of the day and, and, and seek out those stories that uh, were of interest to heartland Australia, the regional communities, Indigenous communities. And so we forged great ties with um, the previous in, um, Indigenous Minister, Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken White and Linda Burney, his successor. Uh, we've established great report with um, community groups like ACOS, um, bringing to our public stories which we believe resonate with um, our, our listening heartland. So it's not just a, main, uh, a steady diet of uh, the main fare from Canberra. We look beyond and um, look to these select committees, look at the parliamentary committees, see what's going on in estimates, and pick those stories which we believe appeal to that multicultural diaspora and, um, and Indigenous affairs across the country. So, Frank, give us some examples of the sorts of stories that, that you're talking about there that you were able to get to as a result of having somebody join you in the uh, Parliamentary Press Gallery. Through Amanda Cop, we've been able to forge um, uh, associations with First Nations media and uh, other, um, you know, other representative bodies who have a profile and presence in Canberra, and uh, together they've been able to work on on stories uh, that have run on both national radio news and Indigenous uh, media corporations or organisations like FNM and NADA Media, 
and um, been able to foster some degree of culture. Specific stories, Monica, don't come to mind with, uh, uh, right now, but um, from a general picture, I can tell you that uh, the advent of uh, NRN or CBAA's political reporter in Canberra has uh, opened doors to us in terms of cooperation with those groups that we have not had the opportunity to pursue before. Okay. Uh, Emily, Minnie, you, you covered the national election this year, the federal election this year, as the uh, NRN's political correspondent. You were covering the Labor Party, I believe? Yes. For um, election night, I covered the Labor Party election event. Yeah. And during the campaign, were, were you on the media bus? Is that how you covered the campaign? No, so it was just um, election night from, on my end of things. Amanda was on the campaign trail. Um, throughout the six weeks there, okay. but my role was to cover um, election night. Yeah. Okay. And so, look, I'm interested to to get your views on this. Both both Emily's actually um, as as young reporters, because there's a great um, divide in the mainstream journalism community about the merits of being, for example, on the bus during a federal election campaign. Whether that adds anything to coverage, whether that kind of locks reporters into a perspective that politicians want them to follow. Do either of you have a view on that? Do you think that there's any benefit in being on a media bus during a federal election campaign, travelling with actual politicians? Or do you think that uh, journalists are better off um, staying apart a little bit and observing from a distance? Well, I think um, from... I obviously don't have first-hand experience on being on a media bus, but I think, sure, like you would have a lot... It would help with the being in closer proximity... But I do think that you can get a really great perspective from being on the outside and being able to see everything still that is going on on the inside. Um, and yeah, I think that is my perspective at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think um, traveling on a media bus, you would have insight into what's going to happen throughout the campaign with that particular party. Um, and I think it also gives the opportunity for some exclusive interviews if they are that way inclined. Um, I think a good example, though, was when our correspondent, Amanda Kopp, went on the campaign trail, she divided her time between the three, um, I guess, main parties, the Labor, Liberal and the Nationals, and also us at NRN as a team, we had someone on the inside and then us who were removed from that. So we didn't have that potential skewing of um, perspectives on the story. Frank, um, do you would you prefer to see your reporters um, being close up and personal with um, with politicians or or at arm's length? Well, Monica, after the last hustings and the controversy that uh, emerged between um, various exchanges between the media and Anthony Albanese in particular suggests to me no. Um, uh, look, uh, the, the very nature and essence of the 24-hour news cycle means that uh, once a person of interest moves or scratches his head or takes a breath, it's, it's reportable. If that's whether that's a good or bad thing, uh, I'm not sure. But the uh, momentum of the times and the nature of our our news cycle demands that a microphone be placed within any you know, person of prominence within uh, earshot at any time of the day. Um, from the uh, from the perspective of news gathering, will the person heading the tour bus, either Liberal or Labor, 
be more inclined to release something, uh, you, know, you know, in the in the proximity of the tour bus or or not. That's uh, neither here nor there. I'm mixed uh, in my view, Monica, but I'd have to say that the shenanigans that eventuated in the last uh, election campaign on the tour buses was a little regrettable, to say the least. Yes, it was. It was, it was um, sometimes amusing, but, bro but broadly speaking, very regrettable. So given all of that, given what you've just outlined there, Frank, I mean, what do you think your audiences want? What does the NRN audience tell you about the way they want politics covered? Independent thinking and uh, an ability to, um, you know, to hear reports and to have uh, journalists prepare reports unblemished or untainted by uh, association, uh, ostensible or otherwise, with uh, the newsmakers of the day. I think there's a great expectation that um, uh, the news delivered on NRN is free of any bias, taint, or uh, supposed or otherwise. And um, we go to great lengths to ensure that the integrity of our of our service is maintained. And if that means distancing ourselves from rather expensive uh, touring junkets uh, come election time, well then so be it. As I mean, we, um, our resources are limited, but that's not to say that they're compromised and um, the, you know, the ethical standards are at the forefront of our thinking when it comes to uh, editorial independence and uh, the way we carry on our business on a daily basis. Which brings me to something that you told the Western Advocate a few years ago, Frank, that, and I quote, a, a community broadcasting holds a balance of power between the commercial and non-commercial radio sectors who might only provide lip service to our key stories. So what, what did you mean by that? Younger and wilder days, Monica, look, there are, there are areas where um, public, no, the commercial broadcast sector fears to tread. Earlier in this interview, I said, look, their job is to put bombs on seats and ears on on radio headsets and uh, and unless they produce stories that appeal to uh, uh, that provide mass appeal, their ratings will suffer and um, their bottom line will suffer as well. These are areas where we don't fear to tread. Uh, the areas where um, uh, we we go actively seeking those stories because we know there's a heartland out there in a constituency that needs to hear those stories but won't necessarily have that. Uh, you know. Uh, get to hear them on mainstream media. That's the niche we feel. That's the cutting edge we provide uh, and the balance we provide, I guess, in terms of the whole of the fourth estate across Australia. And is, when you talk about those kinds of stories, do you mean stories that are um, you know, investor to give type stories or are you talking about uh, stories that, that in the day-to-day -day course of journalism production hold the powerful to account um, all the way through to the colour stories, the features, etc. All of the above. I think that uh, our job is to not not only inform but entertain. So in our uh, you know in our um, scope of reference, we look for those stories in communities that are, that are, you know where where there are good stories, be they colour or be they political or be they of social importance that are on such a microcosm that they won't necessarily appeal to the you know, uh, to, to the mindset of the commercial broadcaster. That's where we step in and uh, and look from, from an investigative point of view, uh, interns and cadets are, uh, are tasked with the job of getting both sides of the story, exploring, um, you know, uh, those nether regions where it, those stories may take time to produce, but uh, once they are produced, we're pretty sure that we can put our brand proudly on those stories and, um, and go forth.
Okay, so uh, you know this this um, enterprise has really really helped a lot of up and coming journalists to get their foot in the door with their training. I believe that Hamish McDonald from the project also um, uh, floated through your enterprise. Um, Emily Francis, you mentioned that you moved up from Tasmania to Bathurst to apply for this cadetship. What what's the experience been like for you so far, and where do you go from here? Yeah, of course. Um... Like you say, I moved up from Tasmania based on the reputation of Charles State University and its affiliation with National Radio News. I think um, the high quality of the journalism is um, has taught me so much about um, how to how to produce those stories that, as Frank said, are independent and so and balanced in the way that they are. Um, and I think that the training that Frank and the rest of the team have provided me um, has definitely, as you say, um, helped me to get my foot in the door and establish myself in the media industry. Um, in terms of where to go from here, I, looking back, say three years ago, I didn't see myself working in radio or reporting on politics. And now that's exactly the two primary things that I'm doing and wouldn't have it any other way. So going forward, that is definitely something that I would love to pursue, whether that is at NRN or elsewhere. But for now, I see myself at National Radio News. Uh, Emily Minnie, not wanting to put you on the spot, of course, with your boss present, but uh, where to for, for you from here? Um, I had a very similar experience to Emily. Um, I applied to CSU because based on its reputation within the media industry, um, I did not see myself working in radio at all. And now, like Emily, it's the primary um, platform that I want to flourish in. Um, I did come into the newsroom knowing that I wanted to go into um, political reporting um, so what's next for me quite some ways down the track Frank don't worry um, is I'm going to head down to Canberra at some point and be a press gallery reporter like Amanda and perhaps alongside Amanda we'll, mm. we'll say <laughs> Well, that will be that'll be very interesting. Frank, a final question to you, if I might, because the, the bulletins obviously will have changed over the past 25 years that it's been in operation. Um, what are your hopes for the service over the next 25 years? I mean, where do you want to take it? So we continue to flourish and uh, expand our ability to reach Heartland Australia, not only through conventional radio, Monica, but um, through obviously more popular and uh, growing uh, areas of popularity um, podcasts. Our uh, political correspondent, Amanda Kopp, is also, uh, is also producing a number of podcasts for the Community Radio Network and uh, uh, a number of it's been quite popular podcasts as well. But we need to move with the times, obviously. Uh, we just can't rely on radio to get the message across. People are, um, the people are tech savvy and, and increasingly so. We need to move with the times to get our profile out there and uh, to let Australia know, 20, 27 million people know that there is an alternative out there, that we do provide um, a service where others, if they don't fear to tread, well, they're reluctant to go. And is, the, is podcasting, uh, you know, a, a big part of your future? It's an extension of radio. It provides an audio service uh, that uh, radio, conventional radio can't touch. So, yeah, I definitely see uh, see has established an app where um, bulletins can be received around the clock uh, on demand. 
that it's the way of the future uh, as far as we're concerned. We need um, to let people know that um, a service like National Radio News exists and the only way we're going to do that is spread our wings and the technology wings and move with the times. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you all very, very much for a, for a great discussion. I really enjoyed it and the best of luck for the next 25 years. And I hope you all um, you know, move on and flourish and do fantastic things for Australian journalism. Thanks, Thanks. Monica. Thank you. And on that note, I'd like to thank Frank Bonacorso, Emily Francis and Emily Nibby for being on Fourth Estate. The NRN is produced by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia in partnership with Charles Sturt University. And thanks for listening to this program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk everything media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockle. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.